Welcome to this week's message from Pastor Jeff Spooniebarger at First Baptist Church, Gulf Breeze, located in the heart of Gulf Breeze, Florida. Open your Bibles, if you will, to Isaiah chapter 9, excuse me, Isaiah chapter 8. One of my favorite passages of Scripture you're going to love this passage, and I hope that I can bring it all together and make some sense to it in today's context. But I want to start by saying that I believe God is slow. He's not just slow. He is painfully slow. He is brutally slow. He has the ability to stretch things out for thousands of years. Amen? Just by curious question, how many of you are right now waiting on God to do something that Uh, that you're just kind of ready for him to do it yesterday in your life. Anybody? And you're like, okay, God, why why won't you just get on the move? Well, I think there's a lot of reasons for that. But um, regardless of what the reasons are, let's just acknowledge that God is slow in terms of our timetable and what we see as slow. But the reality is God is perfect. He is wise. He is sovereign. And his slowness ultimately is is because of his goodness and his grace and his kindness. Because he has the patience to be able to let things get to where they need to be for him to then do what he says he's going to do. Hopefully that will make more sense in a bit. But, But I have been called slow at times. Emotionally, mentally, and in projects. I don't know about you, but but I kind of think of projects for a long, long time. Does anybody else do that? I'll I'll think of something in my heart and I'll start dreaming about it. And and I'm if I make the mistake and tell one of my family members, it it kind of messes everything up because they don't really need to know until I start. To be honest with you, but if I slip because I'm so excited and I tell them this is what I'm thinking of. They then like mark that down and start checking off the calendar. And it might be a week later. It might be a year later. Usually it's a couple of years and maybe even sometimes 10. Like, like uh, our trip that we went on a couple years ago, uh, it took six years ago. Or it took six years last year. It took six years for it to go from in the heart to actually happening. And the moment we drove out of the driveway uh, for our family trip last year, I said to myself, it's here. And there was this sense of relief and there was this sense of joy because what I had been dreaming about and what our family had been dreaming about for much less time but still thinking about it, it had finally come to fruition. We did an addition to our house about that same time and that started 10 years prior. So the dream inside of my heart started 10 years earlier, and somewhere about the seven-year mark, we actually got some plans drawn and then went to the tax office and got some permits going, and it took two full years to make this thing happen, but now we can see the finished project. The the problem with long-term dreams is that usually only the person who has the dream can see the finished product. Everybody else is just frustrated by it, right? For instance, my family, when we were doing the addition, when I say we, I really mean I, but uh, I and a few, uh, okay, son, you help too, and Shannon, we all, we all help, but um, okay, we won't even go there. I'm going to get in trouble. Um, when, when, I start, when, when we started the project, we actually had to bust a hole in the back of the house that was uh, about 12 or 14 foot wide. Now, if you know anything about holes in houses, that, that's not good. 
But in order to bust a hole in the house, we had to rearrange things like our kitchen and our living room and our bedrooms. So we literally just stacked stuff in the house. And it got so bad that we were walking mazes through the house to get to one, from one place to the other. If you've been to our house when that was happening, you remember it, right? There was, what I'm trying to say is there was great frustration in the process of seeing the vision come to pass. There was great consternation and there was great frustration that led to sometimes some tense moments and sometimes some doubting moments of whether or not this was really going to happen. But what I wanted to tell the family was, and not in an arrogant way, but, but truly what I believed in my heart was, if you'll hold on, I promise what I said was going to happen is going to happen. You're just going to have to wait. God has said some things were going to happen. And if you want to see them and not be frustrated in the process, you're just going to have to believe what he said and, say that word with me, wait. Now, is there anybody out here today who has trouble waiting? Is there anybody who's a little impatient? Is there a little bit, anybody out here who wants things done and they want them done yesterday? You know, the thing about getting older is that the, the longer you walk with the Lord, the more you realize that the slowness of God is indeed the goodness of God and the joy is in the journey. And no matter what's happening circumstantially, you can believe if God said it, it is going to happen. In Isaiah chapter 8, God is speaking through the prophet Isaiah to his people, the Israelites, children of God. And as he's speaking to the people in chapter 8, let's start in verse, um, start in verse 17. He says, I will wait for the Lord. He who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, I will wait for him. Notice the wording here. I will wait. God is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, but I will wait. Why will he wait? Or why is he saying for them to wait? Because if they will wait, they will see God bring to fruition what he said he was going to do. The next verse says, here I am with the children the Lord has given me to be signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. When they say to you, consult the spirits of the dead and the spiritists who chirp and mutter, shouldn't a people consult their God? Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony? If they do not speak according to his word, there will be no dawn for them. They will wander through the land, dejected and hungry. When they are famished, they will become enraged and look, looking upward, they will curse their king and their God. They will look towards the earth and see only distress, darkness from the gloom of affliction, and they will be driven into thick darkness. The picture that Isaiah is painting here is a gloom and doom picture. He's saying, I will wait upon the Lord. And he's telling his people, God's people, wait upon the Lord. And if you will wait, your, your hope will be in the one who made a promise and not in the 
powerless, impotent kings and leaders and rulers of the earth. And those who put their hope in the Lord will find peace. And those who put their hope in the things on earth will find destruction and gloom and doom. And pretty much the general feeling that's going on now in 2020. Now, would it be an overstatement to say that 2020 has been kind of a dumpster fire of a year? Would that be about accurate? I mean, in terms of what we're seeing. And I love the way that you turn on TV and you hear the news. I try to watch the 5.30 news, you know, the national news, just because just I want to know what's, what, what people are saying. I don't really want to know what's going on. I just want to know what they're saying, because that's probably not really what's going on. It's just what they're saying, right? And you know how they start the news on every single channel? Right? And the moment it starts, your heart begins to race a little bit. Your blood pressure starts to go up a little bit, right? And you, you ask yourself, okay, what earth tragedy is going on now? They start with the numbers of people that are dead. They start with wildfires. They start with plane crashes. And it's all, they never start with a little girl had a, had a, 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 a lemonade stand out in front and gave it away. They never start with nice stuff. It's always this, this gloom and doom stuff. But the truth is, if you look at 2020 and you look at the world, there's a lot of gloom and doom stuff. I read an article by Michael Brown this week. If you don't read him, he's, he, he writes uh, in a bunch of different, he's published in a bunch of different article, uh, news sources. Uh, Christian Post is one that I kind of try to look at every now and then. But in his article, he started listing 2020's events. And, and it kind of put it into to focus for me. It's not like I didn't know this. It's just reading it out loud or, or reading it in front of me kind of said, wow, that really is a reason to be distressed. It started in January with impeachment trials of our president. Now, whether or not you believe any, any of that should have gone on, whether or not you believe he was just or unjust, that's not the point. But any time a nation is going through impeachment trials of their president, you've got turmoil because it means you have division and you have, you have serious issues uh, in, in politics. And the president is what? The commander of chief or in chief. That means that you've got suspicion on the highest leader of our land. That puts our nation in a precarious situation. And shortly after that, we hear news that governments are beginning to shut their borders because this virus that we call coronavirus, and then it, it turned into COVID-19, and then it was just the COVID. And, and as nations were shutting their borders, we were also hearing conflicting reports of how people were getting sick and where people were getting sick. And, and every single day, if you, if you were like me, every single day you were watching and you were saying, man, where is this going? And it was getting worse and worse and worse and worse and worse, at least for what we've seen or for what we were seeing. And in the midst of that, as if that were not bad enough, we had racial tensions that would rival anything that was going on in the 1960s. We had cities that were burning. We had cities where there were riots, and, and in some places, the people overran the police, and they set up zones that were, uh, I don't even know what they call them. Remember what they called them? Autonomous zones. That means zones without government leadership. That means we the people will govern ourselves, and we saw how that how well worked, that worked out, right? And then we have, we have our government sending troops into different places to try to quell it. it. just All of this stuff is just unfolding. 
And we hadn't even gotten to the summer yet. You're talking about six months at the beginning of this year. Absolute chaos. You're also talking about schools that said, you can no longer, we can't have people come to school because they'll get sick. So we'll just do it online. Well, but if you do it online, we've got to have an online system set up. And people said, you, 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 can't, you can't only not go to school, but you can't even go out to eat at restaurants. Are you feeling a little anxious now? I just realized to myself that I'm doing what the news was doing. But I wanted, I wanted to do this for a reason. Because in every single scope of uh, sphere of our lives, there is chaos, there is calamity, there is distress, there is darkness. But I want you to know there was a promise from God nearly 700 years before the birth of Jesus Christ that said there is a light that will be inserted into that darkness. And with that light that is inserted into the darkness, there will be hope, there will be peace, there will be joy, there will be understanding. And that promise is for you as one of God's people if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. So no matter what's going on on the news, no matter what's going on in the world, you can know that our God reigns. Turn to the person next to you and say, I will wait upon the Lord. Because the scripture says, those who wait upon the Lord, he shall what? Renew their strength. So in Isaiah, there was this prophecy of darkness and gloom and affliction. They will be driven into the thick darkness. But I want you to go back in chapter 8 for just a moment. And I want you to look what God tells his people. And I believe this is a word for us today. Chapter 8 verse 12 says, Do not call everything an alliance these people say is an alliance. In other words, what you hear on the news, don't just believe. What you read in the papers, don't just believe. I'm not talking political here, guys. We've got to get bigger than that, right? I'm saying everything. Question everything that you hear on the news. Because the news is about seeing things from an earthly, carnal, human perspective. And even though there might be some truth mixed in there, the agenda is different than God's kingdom agenda. Amen? Come on, we need to understand that we, we're not blind to this. And again, I'm not talking politics. I'm talking about the way the kingdom of God works and the way the kingdom of this earth works. So you've got this media going on. And there's all kinds of information that's being spoken. But in that information, we're not to call everything an alliance that people say is an alliance. Some might be, but some not might not be. And then the scripture says, do not fear what they fear. Let that ring in your heart. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be terrified. Turn to the person next to you now and say, don't fear what they fear. Do not be terrified. Now, how do you not fear what they fear? Listen, I have very good friends who are now dead because of the coronavirus. I have very good friends who have been very sick because of the coronavirus. This is not a hoax. It's a real deal. 
God help the believers who say this is a hoax. Hello, people don't die from a hoax. Amen? This is a real deal. Now, the scope of it, we can talk about that some other time. But at the end of the day, this is a real sickness that has come across the land. Maybe, maybe we're experiencing the kind of thing that they would have experienced during the Black Death. Maybe it's something that they would have experienced in history before where where hundreds and millions of people in the population got sick. But at the end of the day, we don't fear what they fear. The difference is I can acknowledge something exists but not fear it. I can acknowledge it exists and still say, but my hope is in the Lord God Almighty. And it has to do with how you see it. It has to do with how you react to it and how you respond to it. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be terrified. Listen, it's not saying be, uh, uh, it's not saying don't be cautious. This is something going on in the heart. We can be cautious and not be terrified. We can be careful and not fear. Do you see how that's different? For instance, when I'm around a rattlesnake, and I've been around rattlesnakes in the woods or water moccasins, I don't go, I don't fear you, Mr. Snake. Let me reach down and grab you. I don't do that. No, I shoot him in the head. Okay, usually I'll just let him go. But it, you see what I'm saying? Just because there's danger doesn't mean I have to fear it. I've got to acknowledge it and then say, but I will wait upon the Lord. My hope is in my God. And God says, to his people. Nevertheless, for chapter 9, verse 1, the gloom and the, of this distressed land will not be like that of the former times when he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Nephtali. But in the future, he will bring honor to the way of the sea, to the land east of the Jordan, and to the Galilee of the nations. Here's what's going on here. Remember, this happened in about 740 to 700 B.C. that this was written. Nearly 700 years before the birth of Christ. Isaiah was a prophet to God's people, but they were assaulted by the Assyrians. So the Assyrians came through. I, I think it's Tiglath-Pileazar III is the one who led the assault into the northern kingdom. And when he did that, there was great distress. There was great turmoil because God's people would have been enslaved. They would have been ruled by a, by a, uh, uh, by a kingdom that did not honor Jehovah God. And so the Assyrians, Assyrians caused great turmoil. Now, through that 700-year period, here's what you need to remember. Well, not for the full 700 years, but for several hundred years, God was virtually silent. He was silent. He didn't speak. People didn't have visions. They didn't have dreams. They didn't hear from God. There were no prophets. They were, they were just, just on their own. Now, why was God silent? Well, that's a whole other sermon, but one of the reasons is because God's people would not listen. God's people wanted to do it their way, and they rejected God, and they wanted to, they wanted to figure out how to do this thing through man's perspective. And as a result, God said, okay, figure it out. Work it out. Have you, have you matured enough in your faith to realize that you can't really figure it out yet? Huh? 
Have you, have, you, have, you, have you gotten to the point where you realize that the more you try to do, the more you, try to mess, the more you actually mess it up? The, more, the harder you work at making something right, the more it just seems to become chaotic and, and disheveled and, and messed up. And, and, and when you get to that point, you go, okay, God, I give up. It's all, if you could hear God as a snarky God, which I don't think that's the case, but he would be like, well, finally, hello, I was going to do this years ago, but you wouldn't listen, so I just had to step back and let you do what you wanted to do until you got to the point where you said, I need you how I need you. And God comes in, and he can do in a day what we could not even do in a lifetime. God opens doors that no man can shut, and he shuts doors that no man can open. That's the God who says in his word, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. So in other words, he's saying to his people, they were walking in darkness, but they've seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. Do you ever feel like we're in the days of darkness now? You ever feel like they're just, it doesn't seem like there's going to be an end? Now, we hope that there will be, but, and, and it's funny because people are like, I can't wait for 2020 to end. Because like, as soon as January 1st, 2021 happens, whoo, it's all better. It's all good, right? You know that's not going to happen, right? I mean, literally 2020 is going to become 2021, And we shouldn't be surprised at this. But what this scripture is telling us is that even in the midst of the darkness, a light has dawned. Listen, God spoke this 700 years before the birth of Christ so that you would have faith in him. And see, we have the benefit of being able to look backwards. They were looking at this in the midst of the darkness. They were in the midst of the Assyrian rule. They were in the midst of being persecuted and pressured. And it seemed like nothing was going to go right in their life. And the prophet spoke to them and said, wait on the Lord. Because what he said he will do, he will do. We get to look back on it and say, wow, God said it, he did it. He said it, he did it. He said it, he did it. We can follow the pattern of God. And of all the people on earth who've ever lived, none of us should be without faith. Think about it. How much more does God have to do to prove to you that he will do what he says he will do? I mean, how how much more faithful does God need to be? You know, the problem is not God. The problem is us. The problem is me. The problem is you. Because we say to God, God, I'm just not sure you can handle this. And God says, what part of my history would lead you to believe that? Was it when I parted the Red Sea? Was it when I fed the children of Israel for 40 years every single morning and every single night? Was it when I collapsed the walls of Jericho when my people marched around it? Was, was, it, was it the time that, that uh, Elijah faced 800 and something prophets of false prophets and their God didn't answer and yet I did? I mean, what, what part of my history, God says, can you not believe? And, I, and I'm, not, I don't, I'm not being a smart aleck on that. I'm really asking, how much more do we need for us to really believe that God is who he says he is? And yet, because of our humanity, we still struggle with that. Do you struggle with that? 
Do you struggle with remembering the works of God? In fact, let me ask you, how do you remember the works of God? Not just in Scripture, but how do you remember the works of God in your own life? What do you do? Do you, do you write it down? Or do you just pass through it, not, not really make a moment of it, make a monument, you know, make a, make a memorial so that you can look back? You know that so many times in the Old Testament when God did something marvelous, He told the people, now I want you to stop and I want you to, I want you to make an altar. You know why He did that? Because in our humanity, we don't remember things very long. And God wanted them to have something that when they were walking by that way again, they can go, you see that? That was when God delivered us from the, the enemy. Ah, oh, do you see that? Do you know every time you see a rainbow, what your remembrance should be? That God made a promise never to destroy the earth by water again. Every time there's a rainbow, and God has been giving us rainbows for umpteen thousands of years, however long it was ago, for us to remember his promise. I'm just curious. If God can keep a promise and remind us on a pretty much every single time it rains that he said he would do something and not do something, if he, if he can keep that one promise, do you think he's going to leave you or forsake you now? said, you have enlarged the nation. Verse 3, you have increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoice at harvest time. And as they rejoice when dividing spoils. For you have shattered their oppressive yoke and the rod on their shoulders, the staff of their oppressor, just as you did on the day of Midian. Remember, Isaiah is telling God's people, in the midst of this turmoil, there is hope. In the midst of the struggle, remember the works of God. What was the day of Midian? Do you remember that? Midian was the army that was coming up against God's people. And God selected a man by the name of Gideon. Gideon was out minding his own business. He was on the, the threshing floor. He was just, just doing his daily work. And God spoke to him through an angel and said, Oh, Gideon, you are a mighty warrior. There's a whole sermon in that. God called him who he knew he was, or who he was going to be, not who he was in the moment. I'm sure Gideon looked around and said, uh, mighty warrior? Me? Gideon had no military background. He didn't have kings as a father. He didn't, he didn't know how to work a sword. He was just a regular guy working the grain mill. And yet God spoke to him in the middle of that and said, you mighty warrior. Fast forward, Gideon is now leading God's people, his army. They had 32,000 soldiers. Assyrian, the, Assyria, uh, the Midianite army had multiples more than that. So Gideon is looking at his army, 32,000. He's looking at the Midianite army and he's going, you know, boys, we're outnumbered. We're not just outnumbered, but we're grossly outnumbered. But you know, God said that this battle was his, and so he's going to handle it. And I'm sure at that moment, Gideon was feeling pretty good. He was going, yeah, 32,000. Everybody needs to kill, I don't know, six or eight or ten apiece, and we'll, we'll probably be okay. And then God spoke to Gideon and said, Gideon, you have too many. God said, uh, we're already outnumbered, but oh, okay. 
And so he commanded Gideon to, to divide the army and, and let the ones who wanted to leave back to their homes go. So he thought to himself, well, surely these men are men of honor. They're not going to just leave. And he told him, and 22,000 of his army left. He now has 10,000 soldiers. And he's thinking to himself, well, you know, 10,000, 32,000 against that is bad, but 10,000, that's, that's even worse. And then God spoke to him and said, Gideon, you've still got too many. And wouldn't you have liked to have been there in that conversation? Lord, do you not account? I mean, are, are you seeing the same thing I'm seeing? Because I'm looking at 100,000 over there, and, I, and I'm looking at 10,000 here. We're outnumbered, God. I mean, we're going to need every single available sword. And God says, here's what I want you to do. Take them down to a watering hole. And the one that, that laps like a dog with, the, with their cupped hands, they're the ones that get to stay. Everybody else who gets on their knees and just puts their face in the water, send them home. So Gideon brings them to the watering hole. And for 10,000 men, there were 300 left. Now remember, this story is placed in the midst of this hope-filled prophecy. What Isaiah is saying to the Israelites in this moment is this. Remember how God moved in the past mightily. If he can do it in the past, he can do it in the present, and he can certainly do it in the future. And as the story goes in the scripture, Gideon and his 300 men went with a commanding victory over the Midianite army. Just for a little side note, do you know why God tends to use less to bring a victory like that as opposed to a giant army? Why would you think? What, what does God not share? His glory. God does not share His glory because there is no God like Jehovah. If you want a surefire way to be against God, try to steal his glory. Just try it. Try to think that it's you who have done what you're doing and not him. Uh, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to think of how to say this without sounding terrible. When our kids were growing up, one of the things that we, we tried to really instill in them is that they didn't own anything. Because when you're a kid, nothing is in your name. And even what you think is yours is not yours. It's mine. It's ours. The reason that we were so intent on doing this is because we wanted to help our kids know that ownership ultimately belongs to God the Father. We're simply managers of everything that we have in our possession. And the moment we start to say, this is mine, you can't have it, that's the moment at which God begins to say, maybe I need to teach you a little bit about my lordship. The funny thing is, when our kids would start to mine, 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 they would lose it. But when they recognized our ownership of it, we not only would let them have it, but we would even possibly, a lot of times, bless them with more. That's the same thing that happens in your life and in my life with God. When we try to, to steal his glory, when we try to think that we built our own life the way we are, 
do you know that at any moment, God could cut your breath if he desired? A, a friend of mine um, died of a heart attack on, I believe it was Friday, out of nowhere. Now, he was a godly man. He was a good man. But he had no idea that he was going to take his last breath. Could you imagine what it would be like to be living now? And, and I'm, I'm, he was living for the Lord. But could you imagine what it would be like to not be living for Christ Jesus and for God to say, today is your day and for him to go and you stand before God and him question you and say, what is it that you did with your life? What do you have to show for your life? You know, that should not be a scary thing for any of us. None of us should fear standing before God. Why? Because it's by grace that we're saved through faith, not of our works. It's not about being good. It's about God's goodness in us and through us. And as long as we're yielded to him and as long as we recognize that he is the Lord, then our life will do and be as he calls us to be. Does that make sense? But so many people are living in this land and they are, are not recognizing that God himself is the one who makes promises and the one who holds the keys to literally everything in our life. If we continue, he says, For you shattered the oppressive yoke. And then verse 5, The trampling the boot of the battle, the bloody garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. He's saying to a people who cannot see with their eyes that every enemy will be laid low. Remember, 700 years before the birth of Christ. For unto us a child is born. Verse 6. A son will be given to us, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and he will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast, and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom and establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So he chooses to make a promise of deliverance, not a sign of a deliverer, but an actual deliverer, 700 years before he comes, and the deliverer is a child. A baby changes everything. I've got friends my age and a little older who are becoming grandparents, and a baby changes everything. I have friends who have the opportunity to go on hunts all over the place. And man, they can have a hunt scheduled and their son or daughter will say, hey, would you watch little baby, you know, your, your grandson? Absolutely. What were you going to do? Nothing. I mean, they'll cancel a fishing trip. They'll cancel uh, a, a trip to Europe. They'll cancel everything. And, and you know that these are the people that we're talking about because everything now on their Facebook feed is about their grandbaby. And it's them sleeping, Right? They're cooing. They're wearing a shirt that says granddaddy's favorite, whatever. I mean, a baby changes everything. This baby changed everything. This baby truly changed everything. 
By the way, I kind of think it's funny that when we sing Silent Night, we, we talk about uh, a baby, no crying he makes. I don't know what baby they're talking about, but it's not a real baby. But could you imagine Mary having worked all day, feeding the baby and, and taking care of things and finally gets the baby down to sleep. Baby, uh, you know, Mary's exhausted and just ready to sit down and have a little me time. And some little boy shows up at the door and says, hey, I brought a gift for Jesus. It's a drum solo. I mean, could you, could you imagine how awkward that would be? Thank you for laughing at that. I've been working on that all day. Here's the names, the four names given to this, to this child. Wonderful counselor. When you don't know what to do, Jesus gives wisdom. The book of James tells us, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives it liberally to all those who will ask. Is there anybody in here who doesn't know what to do next? You're just, you're just really frustrated and stressed over this. There really is truth in the scripture. And Jesus really is a wonderful counselor. It doesn't mean you're going to ask once and he's going to lay out his life plan for you. But it means if you ask, he will answer. But sometimes you don't find him because you don't seek him. You know, when our kids were little, they used to ask for things. I usually let them ask multiple times for something before I actually got it. You want to know why? Because kids like to ask about things that are spur of the moment. Hey, I want a pony. And the next day, I want to go gymnastics. And the next day, yeah, my child's upset about that, that one still. They, 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 tend to, they tend to go on these kicks, right? But when you have a child ask over and over and over, what does it do? It shows you that this is really something deep-seated in their heart. It really is a passion and a desire. When you pray, do, do you kind of pray fly-by-night prayers? Like you pray one thing today, but you don't pray about it again for a week or two weeks or even a month. Listen, you don't want what you think or say you want if you're only asking one time a month. Turn to the person next to you and say, that's true. Really? You know how you know what you really want an answer to? When you cling to the God of heaven and say to him, I will not let you go until you bless me. I'm going to ask this, and I'm going to ask this, and I'm going to ask this until you tell me to stop asking or until you answer. But you know what most of us do? Most of us, we, we say a little prayer here, and then we go on our lives. Oh, yeah, I'm going to ask about this, and we go on our lives. He's a wonderful counselor. If you want to know, all you have to do is ask. You have not because you ask not. Amen? That's what God said. He is mighty God. Mighty God. I think of uh, Mighty Mouse when I read this. I, I don't, I, I'm, I'm not supposing God is a mouse. And I'm not supposing he's that big. But the concept, this little teeny tiny mouse who can rule the world. You know what I'm talking about? You remember Mighty Mouse just busting through his chest? When I read this, I kind of think of the idea of some, someone that is so strong Someone that is so mighty, someone that is so sovereign that nothing can stop him. Eternal Father or everlasting Father. 
Everlasting means there is no end. And then my favorite, the Prince of Peace. Now we've been talking this, this, this morning about darkness and about chaos and about confusion and about stress and about all that's going on. And yet in the midst of that, we can sleep. Question for you. Do you sleep at night? I don't answer it out loud, but just do you sleep at night? Or, or do you wrestle? Do you flip all night long? Just constantly. I'm sure there are some medical reasons for that. But sometimes it's because we don't have peace. And the way you find peace is to do what the scripture says. Cast your cares upon the Lord. Why? Because he cares for you. So if you put all of this together. We're walking in this darkness. But in the darkness a light has dawned. And that light was a little baby. And that little baby had a name. Among his names were Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. His very name is Jesus, which means our God saves. They call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And all of the other names that you could think of in the New Testament, he identifies himself as the way, the truth, the life, the gate, the door. All of these things are, are, are places that either let you in or keep you out. And this Jesus that we're talking about, this little baby boy became a man and died on a cross so that you could have a direct line and direct access face to face with, thought, with God the Father, Jehovah, who is the creator of all things in heaven and on earth. This is the God we serve. And his dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. His reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The Lord of Lords or the uh, zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. I want you to turn to the end of your Bible. In Revelation chapter 20. I hope you followed my, my train of thought here. I hope I've made it clear enough to where you can see that the theme is that God's timing is long. But he has made a promise that he is going to make all things new. And no single generation saw it all. We go on the faith of those before us and the faith of those after us. In Revelation 20, here's what the scripture says, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and the one seated on it. Earth and heaven fled from his presence and no place was found for them. I also saw the dead, the great and the small standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by what was written in the books. Then the sea gave up the dead and death and Hades gave up their dead. And all were judged according to their works. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. 
This is the second death, the lake of fire. And anyone not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. The Bible tells us at the end of the story that there will be judgment. And this judgment will be mono imano. It'll be you and God face to face. If you believe the scripture, that's what it says. The great white throne of judgment. It's, it's this picture of this enormous throne and you standing before God with no one else as the, as the focus. But in that moment, God is going to look through the books. One of the books is called the book of life. And there were other books. And in those books were the works of your life. In other words, it's a story of your life that you are writing right now. And as he flips through the pages, I, I, this is all the detail we have, but I wonder if he's going to say, hmm, remember when? Hmm. Ah, remember when? And the Bible says that if your name is not found in the book of life, you are cast into the lake of fire. But if your name is in the book of life, then you receive chapter 21, which says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea no longer existed. In other words, all of this that we're dealing with now passed away. And he says, I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. And he said, look, God's dwelling is with humanity. He will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will no longer exist. Grief, crying, and pain will exist no longer because the previous things have passed away. And then the one seated on the throne said, look, I'm making everything new. He also said, right because these words are faithful and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning and the end. And I will give water as a gift to the thirsty from the springs of life. And the victor will inherit these things. And I will be his God. And he will be my son. But the cowards, the unbelievers, the vile, the murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars. Their share will be in the lake of fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So in five days, we celebrate Christmas, the day a baby was born. But do not let it go past you that this baby changed everything. This baby was prophesied 700 years before, and the baby actually was planned at the Garden of Eden. So do you see what happens in Revelation 21? Everything we had in the garden God will bring full circle and restore it back like it's supposed to be. Turn to the person next to you and say, are you looking forward to a day of no death, no crying, no shame, 
no sickness, no brokenness, no heartache, no disease, no contacts, no glasses, no insulin, no diabetes, no broken bones, none of that. But you know what? That's a promise that's, that's, that's far off for us. But it's a promise. Janice, are you excited about that? I'm excited about that. When I read this, it says to me, it don't matter what's going on. It doesn't matter. They might be able to kill my body. But I know in whom I have believed. I want you to take that and let it sink into your soul. And I want you to have the hope and tomorrow when everything comes apart, I want you to sing like Horatio Stafford wrote. When peace like a river attendeth my way and sorrows like sea billows roll. Whatever my lot thou hast caused me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Father, I pray that you would give us this overwhelming peace that comes through an absolute belief in you. Father, in the midst of such great turmoil in our world, we have hope. We have the light of Christ. And so, God, I pray that you'd help us to live the hope that we profess. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Find out more about First Baptist Church, Gold Breeze at FBC Gold.